0: My name's Nick. Uh, Welcome to Mercy Hill. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you afterwards. If there are any ways I can encourage, uh, answer questions, pray for you. I'd love to talk after the service, so um, just always know that. We're going to be getting in um, God's Word here this morning. Um, We're in Luke's Gospel, kind of. We're kind of launching out of Luke's gospel for what I might call a little mini-series here. But we'll begin um, by reading back in Luke's gospel again. Luke 5, 24 through 26, verses 24 through 26. If you need a a Bible, raise your hand and uh, some lovely gentlemen will get you one. Um, but again, in your New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Chapter five, verses 24 to 26. I guess the school is doing a, uh, a play or something like that. Looks pretty cool around here. They got spotlights and sound, sound systems. Um, well, let's read this. Let me pray and then we will get in. Verse 24. But that you may know, this is Jesus speaking, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home. Glorifying God and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. Let's pray. God, what happens in this narrative, in Luke's Gospel, is what we so badly want to have happen here in this room with us. We want to see something about you, your glory displayed. We want to savor it, delight in it with all of our hearts. And we want to glorify you. God, we want we want to know how to do that. How to fulfill our calling as your image bearers to reflect you in the world and in the universe. God, we want to participate In bringing you glory. Because we know. It's in that that we find our own joy and satisfaction that humanity comes into its own. When it comes under its creator. And glorifies him. So God, I pray. Would you continue to show us what this looks like? Would you continue, God, to lead us forward so that we can, uh, like this crowd, like this paralytic in our text, glorify you? I need your help today, Jesus, to communicate your words, your will, your heart to a people so desperately in need. God, we all come with our hands open, with our mouths open. With our hearts open, just saying, Jesus, we need your nourishment. We need you to minister. What an amazing thing that we have a God who's not far off. Who doesn't close his arms and turn his back. But who delights to draw near to his people, to descend, to lean in. And to bless so, God, we're calling for that blessing now in Jesus' name. We ask these things. Amen. So, we uh, had spent, you know, a week... Um, on this text in Luke, uh, a little bit bigger, the whole story with the paralytic and the the crowd and all this. And in the midst of that, I'll just rehearse real quickly where we've been. Um, In the midst of that, something caught my eye at the end of the narrative that's now launched us into this little mini series. And that is what we just read there and what I even focused on in my prayers. This topic, uh, this concept or idea of glorifying God. As we got to the end of this, I couldn't help but notice that both the paralytic and the crowd glorified God. And as I sat back and I wonder, I thought, what does that mean that they are doing? What does that mean that they did? It doesn't, it doesn't explain. It doesn't specify. Does it mean that they sang? Does it mean that they cried? Does it mean that they told everyone about him? Does it mean that they gave thanks to him for what he did? Does it... What does it mean to glorify God? The broader question that kind of came from that is, how, how do we do it? W- what does it mean? Not just in the context there, but now generally, does God give us any idea in the scriptures how we in fact glorify him? Those are the sorts of questions, the sorts of things that have given rise to what we've been dealing with now for uh, a couple of weeks. And we have this week and then one more on it, I, I've been trying to answer that question. What does it mean to glorify God? How do we do it? We as Christians talk a lot about it. But do we even know what we mean when we say it? And do we know how to do it? So to this point. Um, We've formed a basic definition for glorifying God, and I've identified a fundamental dynamic that must be in play if, in fact, we are to be glorifying God. Those things are on the handout. Can't go through them again. I'm sorry. Uh, That's in the first message if you are interested in this series, but everything is building on it. Now, uh, where we are is we're going to get into the practicals, the nuts and bolts, the hands and feet of glorifying God. God. In other words, what does it actually look like in Nick Weber's life? To get uh, at this, I, I, I mentioned last time I just simply did a, a word study in the Greek uh, for these words, you know, glorify or glory. And I just looked for God, when do you say, what do you say we're doing when we're glorifying you? And came up with about twelve. Uh we looked at three last week. We've got four on on the uh agenda for this morning, Lord willing. And then next week we'll take um the rest. But just to remind you, um uh, twelve sounds first of all it sounds biblical, so I like that. Uh but second of all it sounds long, right? But it's, 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 it's actually not meant to be exhaustive. We think of 12, we think that's a lot of things. <laughs> but this is just to kind of get us started. This list is just the beginning of ways you and I can glorify God. So let's just let this get it rolling for us, uh, as we kind of see the various things that, that God says we, uh, can do to bring Him glory and hence fulfill our, our, um, goal. As his creatures, what we were created for. So let's just jump right in. Um, We are now, therefore, in number four uh, of these particular expressions, these practical expressions. So we can bring God glory by praying to him unceasingly. Last week, if I recall, I think uh, I can't remember the order exactly, but we can bring him glory. We looked at by can somebody help me out? By, there you go. By singing for joy to Him, we can bring Him glory by hoping in Him against all hope. And then we can bring Him glory by fearing Him above all else. Well, this morning now we're gonna see we can bring God glory by praying to Him unceasingly. We're gonna spend, uh, probably the most significant amount of our time on the first two, this one especially. Now near the end of John's Gospel, As um, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, he he says in John 14, verse 13, this. I want you to hear it. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Read it one more time. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Why? That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, obviously. There's a lot you talk about here, and there's been a whole host of interpretation on whatever you ask in my name, he's going to do. You know, what does that mean? We don't have time to deal with that. The only thing that I want to make note of here straight away is this link that Jesus forges here between my praying, my, my asking something of God and, and Jesus, and then the glory that comes to the Father from it. My praying and its connection to glorifying God. Because according to Christ, what we see here is when we pray in his name and he comes and moves in response to it, the father is glorified in the son. Now, let me take us on what might seem at first like a rabbit trail. It's not. I promise you, um, with this language of, of, of father and son, we are, we are reminded here um, that prayer, I wonder if you've ever thought of this before, prayer is actually identified in the New Testament as, as almost the chief privilege of our adoption in Christ. It is identified, prayer, talking to the Father, <coughs> is identified as our chief privilege um, that we get from our adoption in Christ. You see this plainly in both Galatians 4, 6 and Romans eight fifteen. but I'll just read Romans uh, to, to keep things moving along. They basically say the exact same thing. Here's Romans eight fifteen. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, what is the primal and persistent activity of uh, the child of God, the adopted child of God, the born again child of God? Crying or praying. You know that the Christian life has begun. You know that regeneration, that the new birth, that adoption has happened in Christ because that person will immediately break forth with a cry to God, their father. And that sort of relationship and ongoing conversation continues as this child is now in the family of God. And, you know, this sort of thing is fresh on my mind, obviously, because we just gave birth to uh, I can't say, I can't look at that. I just kind of I, I didn't give birth. <laughs> I can't take any credit for that. Um, but, you know, my wife just gave birth to our son. And, you know, what's the first thing they're listening for when to make sure things are going okay? What is the sound a baby makes when it comes into the world? Cries, cries for mommy and daddy for help. It knows that it needs it it needs something. And there's a cry that comes out. There's there's it's no different in the new birth. When we've been adopted in Christ, a cry comes forward now to our heavenly father. So because of Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God. God is now our father. We can come and talk to him. Now bringing it back, what Jesus is saying, therefore, in John 14, 13, is that when we make use of this privilege, when we uh, are live in constant communion with our father, when we pour out our anxieties and the burdens on our hearts and we just get before him and we bring, we just cry out to him and ask him for things in Jesus name. God is glorified. God is glorified. We See who God is for us in Christ. We're convinced that he's able to help. That he cares and is compassionate. And therefore we cry out in prayer. He comes and he moves in response. And he's glorified. But the question I've been asking with each one of these particular expressions is how exactly? How exactly is God glorified through our praying? Through my praying to him, how am I, if you recall our definition of, of, of glorifying God, how am I enhancing his reputation in the world? What am I saying about God when I'm praying to him? Well, I think from our discussion up to this point, uh, we could put it simply as this. My praying to God in this way says to the world, God is a good Father. That's what's being made known about him when we give ourselves to pray in this way. God is good father. Now, you might see this uh, more plainly when we come at it from the opposite angle, because we have to ask ourselves, I mean, and you guys probably deal with it, I deal with it. uh, The prayerlessness that we often deal with, uh, we we often, I don't know, I don't know if you're like me or not. I talk a lot about prayer. I even go and I try to pray, but I end up kind of not doing it all the time. And even when I'm sitting there, I'm more thinking rather than praying or journaling or writing or I end up doing a task list for my day. We've got to ask ourselves... What's happening when uh, we're not praying? What does not praying uh, say about our father? What's going on when we don't pray? Well, I'll tell you what happens. It's almost like a retreat to the orphanage. Okay. If adoption in Christ means I'm calling out to a God who is now my father, well, then when I stop praying, it means I'm almost like retreating to the orphanage. I'm going back to self-reliance. I'm going back to well it's up to me. God, he may be up there somewhere, but I've got to figure this out on my own. It's on my own strength. Instead of looking up to him, I'm looking in to myself for strength. We're not living as adopted sons, but as forgotten orphans. And therefore, what do we say about God? to the world when we don't pray. You want to know what I think we're saying? God's too busy to be bothered. God's not going to get in meddle in the affairs of man. God takes care of the big stuff like salvation and getting you into heaven. But don't bother him about your daily bread or your bank account and And the diminishing bottom line and your concerns for your family or whatever he doesn't care it's up to you get planning, read another book on 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 finding to be financial savvy because God surely don't look up to him he's not going to help you on that. When we when we live as orphans, we, we act as if God is a neglectful father, as if he's not really there. You see how the opposite, we can come at it from the opposite angle. When we're praying, we say, man, God is a good father. He cares about every aspect of my life. He wants to be a part of it. When we're not praying, we're saying, Pfft. he takes care of the beginning and the end. But the middle, good luck, guys. Good luck. You, you, you hearing what I'm saying on that? I, I fear I, I often give this sort of impression to my own kids. You know, God, dad's busy. <laughs> you know, I have an office at the home, which is not so easy. If I'm working on a sermon or something, dad, dad, and no girls, I can't, I can't, I can't I'm too busy, I'm too distracted. Stop. I can't. No, 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 no. Listen, let me tell you something. God is never that way. God, God, God always has time for us. I mean, God has adopted us in Christ. The Savior was Christ. He disinherited his own son so he could adopt us. That's how far he's willing to go. And now he's saying, take advantage of that privilege. Right? Come in. He not only wants you to bring every care and concern you have to him, he's glorified as good father when you do, when you do. Let me um, drive this home by reading you something from a guy by the name of Russell Moore. He works at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, And he's talking about an experience he had in a Russian orphanage. This is really cool. I'd heard somebody read this a long time ago, and it came to my mind as I was preparing this. Listen to this story. It's it's awesome having Patty talk about Foster the Bay and whatnot. here's, Here's an example. This is what he says. The creepiest sound I have ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Maria and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Maria's elbow. Why is it so quiet? The place is filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. Here, if we listened carefully enough, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slats gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergey now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like. But neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with with the words that they could not understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every day we left at the appointed time in the same way we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Maria and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye. As by law, we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Maria shook with tears. And that's when we heard it. The scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew maybe for the first time that he would be heard on some primal level. He knew he had a father and mother. Now, I will never forget how the hairs on my arms stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck maybe for the first time by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament. Ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised by how little I had gotten it until now. Did you hear that? Orphans don't cry because they don't have a father. They don't have anyone that cares to come in and help them. It's up to them to rock themselves to sleep. There's no mommy or daddy going to do that. But adopted children cry. Because they know they're cared for. They know that help will soon be on its way. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, guys, is is where are we in that? I don't know about you, but but I often find that there's the, the the, the orphan in me waging war against the adopted son. That I'm, I'm often prone to think it's up to me. I've got to figure out how to comfort myself. There's no sense in crying to God. There's no sense because he's not going to be there. But I wonder where you're at. I wonder how your prayer life is going. Are you the orphan? Were you the son? When we, not, when we watch our, our nation... Um, Seeming like it's ripping apart at the seams, right? If you're watching the news. I mean, do you run to your father and pour out your cares in his ear? Assured, knowing, convicted, convinced that, that he hears you and moves. Or do you give in to panic and slander and rage and fear and all these other things along with the rest of everyone else? Are we orphans and it's on our own to protect, uh, protect ourselves or is our father in control like he's always been? Because I'll tell you something, when we find our way to Abba's lap and when we are living in prayer, bringing our petitions to him in the name of the son, we glorify him as the good dad that he is. Amen. Okay, let's move on to number Five, so we can glorify God by praying uh to him unceasingly. we can glorify God now by bearing much fruit through him by bearing much fruit through him. Uh, a chapter later in john 's Gospel, we come uh to jesus 's discussion of the vine and the branches. He begins in uh, chapter 15, John chapter 15, verses one through five, this way. Let me read it to you. "I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more. Already, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And here's the text I'm interested in. Then in verse 8, we read this by this, my father is glorified. I say, how? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So he makes the connection for us there in John 15, verse eight, that to bear fruit, my and your bearing fruit glorifies God. Not only proves uh, us to be his disciples, it glorifies God. Now, in case we are confused, what is meant by fruit here? Um, Jesus makes it plain in the context that follows. He's talking about love, the fruit of, of, of self-sacrificial love for others. He goes on in verses 12 through 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, is someone lay down his life for his friends. So putting it together, when that kind of self-sacrificial love clusters on the branch that is my life, Jesus is saying, God is glorified. God is glorified. And I want to ask again, how? How does my fruit... Glorify him. How does it enhance God's reputation in the world? What does my fruit bearing say about my God? Well, again, given the discussion, to put it simply, I I think it says God is the true vine. That's just essentially shorthand for saying Every good thing, every good fruit that comes forth from my life, he's the source of it. It comes from him. I'm a branch. He's the vine. If I'm plugged into him, he's the one that's giving the nutrient and the energy that's starting to bring forth this self-sacrificial love in my life. The credit, the glory goes to him. So if you see this fruit in my life, It's because of my God Um, to show you a little bit more regarding this. The 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 Old Testament background, there's significant Old Testament background for the imagery in John 15 about this whole idea of the vineyard and bearing fruit and all these things. Um, In particular, Israel was was considered uh, uh, God's vineyard. And, and 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 God had kind of planted and was overseeing, superintending, caring. God was the vine dresser and and caring for them. But there was one significant problem with this vineyard through all the centuries that God cared for it. They never bore any fruit. Isaiah says this in Isaiah five seven: The vineyard of the Lord of Hosts is the house of Israel, and the man of Judah. Are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In other words, God saved Israel, brought them out, planted, was, was overseeing, and then looked for love, looked for the fruit of love, and found only oppression, only injustice. And what we've come to find through the years is it's not in the hearts of men to love God and neighbor. It is in the hearts of men to love self at the expense of God and neighbor. Which is why Jesus can say over yours in my life as we as we were uh, in the flesh, as we were by nature. This is what he says over yours in my life. Get ready for it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. There's no fruit on Nick Weber's life unless Jesus gets a hold of me. That's what the whole old testament is 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 there to prove. There's no prophet, priest, king, nobody that can do this for us except for Jesus Christ. He comes and he says, "I am the true vine." what he means by that is everything humanity was called to be but never was. Here I am. The whole idea of a fruitful you know, vineyard, here I am. The love of God incarnate, here I am. And I will lay down my life for my friends and for the world. Here I am. Therefore, it is only uh, as we, the branches, are united or abide in him, the vine, that we start to actually see some of this happen in our lives as well. And so the reason why the reason why this this love in my life or 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 these fruit that's that's clustering on on the branch that is my life glorifies him is because he's the one ultimately responsible for it. He's the he's the stem and the root beneath it. Does that make sense that if he weren't there, the fruit wouldn't be there. Let me just give you an avalanche of text to make this point clear. Um begin with, with with John fifteen sixteen in the immediate context. This is what Jesus says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Why? That you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. In other words, why is fruit on Nick Weber's life or Paul Walton's life? Or why is there any fruit at all? Because I, Jesus, appointed you. I chose you. I said your fruit will come and it will remain. Well, consider Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in christ jesus why for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them why am i doing good works because he prepared them beforehand and he's working on me i am his workmanship in christ just another way of coming at this whole vine branch imagery we get brought into him and we're made something more than we ever could be in ourselves Or Romans 7, 4, listen to this. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. Why? In order that you may bear fruit for God. I know I'm reading these fast, but let me just highlight something for you. What's the first step in bearing fruit for God, according to Romans 7, 4? I'll tell you what it's not. It's not try harder. <laughs> it's not give yourself to the Christian disciplines of prayer and Bible study and squeeze that fruit out as if you were like at the 24-hour fitness, you know, on a Friday night when the real dedicated people are there. It's not the first step in bearing fruit. The first step is die. Die to the law. Die to the idea that you could climb up and somehow please God and fulfill all of this. Die to it so that you can be raised to newness of life in him. He's the vine. He's the one. You plug into him, the resurrected son, and suddenly fruit starts to come in your life. What about Philippians one 6 i I'll leave you with this one, although I could have kept going. I'll be merciful to you. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if you notice what Paul says the day of Jesus Christ will be like for us down in verse 11. Paul says uh, that we will be on that day filled with what? The fruit of Righteousness. That comes how through Jesus Christ (laughs) to the glory and praise of God. Do you hear that? I know I'm going fast. It's God's work. It's through Christ. And even when there's fruit on, on the branch of my life, therefore, it's to his glory. So God gets the glory from my fruit because he is the stem and the root beneath it. And when people see love coming out of of us, (laughs) that's not of this world. I pray they see it. I pray the people in your office. I pray the people in this church. I pray your neighbors see a kind of self-sacrificial love that is not of this world. And when they do, You want to know what Jesus says will happen, or at least we hope will happen in Matthew 5, 16. They will see our good works, our good works, but they will glorify. They will give glory to our father in heaven. They'll say, there's no way you did that. (laughs) I mean, that was that was my parents response to my uh, they're here today. That was my parents response to when I got saved. Who is this kid? It's not my son. What in the world is going on there with campus crusade? This is. He's involved in something strange. End up giving glory to God because there's no way. There's no way we're doing this in our own strength. He's the one. And so the critical question we have to ask at this point is, are we abiding in the vine? Are we abiding in the vine? Have we turned from trusting in ourselves to trusting in Christ? And this isn't just a, you know, I did that when I got saved, Nick, sort of a thing. This is a daily, daily battle to repent and believe, to turn from and turn to, to say, it's not me. I can't do this. Jesus can daily on our knees. You start your day that way. There'll be some more fruit. Hanging from the branch of your life, I mean the self-help sections of the local bookstores are swelling with ideas. But they won't get you very far. They won't get you very far. You want to bear fruit. You've got to plug in to the root, to the vine, to the only one who ever bore fruit that pleased God, namely, to Jesus Christ. And in that, glorify him, glorify God. So we will glorify God by praying unceasingly to him, by bearing much fruit through him. Now we see, and, and these ones we're going to go faster on, um, number six. We are going to, uh, we can glorify God by overflowing in a wealth of generosity for others. It's kind of related to number five, but this one had enough octane. I felt to stand on its own. We can glorify God by overflowing in a wealth of generosity for others. Um, in Paul's day, uh, it seems that the church in Jerusalem had, had fallen on, on rough times. Okay, There's persecution, other things going on there. And there were many saints who were in need of financial help. Um, and so Paul, as he's going on these, these missionary journeys, is also kind of telling people about Jesus, but also collecting funds for the church in Jerusalem for when he returns. So he can bring relief to the saints. And he recalls, uh, as he's writing to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1-5, through 5, which is what we'll read, he's recalling the response of the Macedonian church uh, along the way. As he was calling for funds to give relief to the saints, he, he, he recalls now how these Macedonian churches responded. This is what he says second corinthians eight one through five We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part for they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints and this not as we expected but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us let me bring out what just happened there by bringing this uh, home to us. How do you respond in severe tests of affliction? I don't know if you noticed that, but he's saying these, these Macedonian churches themselves were in a severe test of affliction. And he's saying that they themselves were in extreme poverty. And I'm wondering, how do you and I, how do we respond in severe tests of affliction and extreme poverty? Is it not that we often turn inward at that point and and, and that we we often feel quite justified in doing so? Like this is just a rough season for me. I don't have time to think about anyone else right now. I will get back to being generous. I'll get back to ministry or serving others once I can kind of get this stuff squared away because I am in a severe test of affliction. (laughs) We kind of excuse ourselves from even thinking about other people at that point. But that is not what these Macedonians do. It's it's, it's in precisely the opposite direction. It's even so far in the opposite direction that it surprises Paul. He says, this is not even what I expected to see. He says that these Macedonians, because they saw and they savored all that God was for them in Christ... Because of their abundance of joy due to the grace of God that had been given them, he says that they they overflowed in a wealth of generosity for these needy saints in Jerusalem. They overflowed in a wealth of generosity for these uh, needy brothers and sisters. Oh, sure, we could talk about our needs, but it says they beg to be a part of relieving their needs. What favor it would be to get to give my money, my possessions, away to them. You think, this is insane. This is insane kind of living. Who lives like this? You're still wondering, where's the connection to glorifying God? Well, Paul would go on later to describe this financial gift being delivered to the jerusalem saints this is second corinthians 8:19 he would call this this financial gift an act of grace that is being ministered for the glory of the lord himself he would even go so far and this is great in verse 23 as to identify the men appointed to deliver this gift to jerusalem the Jerusalem church uh, as the very glory of Christ itself. He says, these men who are bringing this gift, I mean, they are the glory of Christ. When they roll into Jerusalem and, 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 and and, and give this gift to the church, these people aren't seeing dollar signs. They're not seeing financial relief. They're not seeing bread on the table. They're not seeing uh, philanthropy done by a few good men. They are seeing the glory of Christ in those moments. Because saints all around were, were giving, especially this Macedonian church, were giving even from their poverty to relieve their needs. They said, I see Christ in that. Christ is glorified here. And our question, as always, is how? How? How is Christ glorified? How is God glorified? What does my generosity say about God to the world? When we live that way, what are we declaring about our God? I mean, a number of things, but here's one. And hopefully you know what I mean. I don't mean this in a prosperity gospel sort of way. Our God is rich. Our God is is rich, meaning I don't need stuff. I have Christ, and Philippians four nineteen says Christ is able to meet my needs. How? According to the riches of His glory. You hearing that? <laughs> If I have Christ, I don't need the barns full of stuff. Jesus owns the world. He's going to take care of me. Therefore, I could just give stuff away. I don't need it. It's an opportunity to glorify him. When I give away what I have to you, I show you the one who so generously gave himself away to me. And that's the whole logic of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. There there in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8, we read this. It's one of my most favorite verses in all the Bible. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became rich poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we are already rich in him. And this is why Paul would say, man, you're showing the glory of Christ when you live this way. I mean, who, who in this room is ready to make themselves poor to, so that another person can be rich. Talking about physically earthly possessions. That sounds crazy. But these Macedonians were saying, hey, we'll go into deeper debt, <laughs> deeper poverty. If it, means we get to, if it means we get to glorify God in this way. It sounds wild. It sounds crazy. But those who see all that Christ is for us, or all that God is for us in Christ... Savor him, know who he is. I mean, they don't hesitate to just be generous, to overflow in a wealth of generosity and give away so that God in that would be glorified. This church does that quite well, actually. You guys are amazing at it. I have many examples in my mind, but we will move on to the final, um, final point. So seven, now we see uh, that we can glorify God by giving thanks to him for everything. So glorify God by praying to him. God is a good father. Glorify God by um, by bearing fruit through him. God is, is true vine. Glorify God by. Uh, By overflowing in generosity, God is rich. And now, finally, we glorify God, we see, by giving thanks to him for everything. And this is where we will conclude. I I think this is a good place to end (laughs) uh, because we've talked now about prayer and how God comes to answer. He's a good dad. We've talked. Now about um, fruit and bearing fruit. And now he's the very power and the source of it. Like He's the one who got a hold of my life and is putting me back together. And we've talked then about all the riches that we have in him. So we're free to give uh, away our earthly stuff. What more natural expression is there in response to all the grace that we've just been discussing than to turn to the one who gives it all to us and say, thank you. Thank you. And what we find when we give thanks to God in this way is that we've actually yet glorified him in in, in but another way. (laughs) Because Paul would uh, go on in 2 Corinthians 4.15... He would talk about his ministry and why he's willing to suffer and all these things and what it's all about. And he says this, it's all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In other words, giving thanks to God glorifies God, I think that connection is pretty clear, turning to the one from whom, you know, we received all these things and saying thank you, gives him glory. It glorifies him. And again, we ask how, what is my giving thanks to him, say about him to the world? How is, how is his reputation enhanced? What does it say? Again, to put it simply, I think my thanksgiving says God is giver. God is giver. God is, is the one from whom every perfect gift comes from. Right? You know that text in James 1.17? Every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So we turn to the Father of lights and we say, thank you. Thank you. I think our thanksgiving says, what do I have that I did not receive? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Everything I have, I get from him. My life is just one big receiving <laughs> from God. Therefore, thank you. I think our thanks says, along with Paul in Romans 11, uh, 33 and 35 through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches of God, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him. be glory forever, everything I have in my life just been been given to me from the repository of his riches. Therefore, to him. Be the glory. For it all, and here, here's the thing we need to know as as Christians, people of the cross we we ought to be the most grateful people on the planet. we ought to be the most, right right when we I mean there's no way to truly stand in the presence of God, considering the cross and not be grateful. you want to know why because the cross says at one and the same time, you and I deserve Eternal death. And yet we've been given freely, graciously, eternal life. Oftentimes our, our lack of thanksgiving is a result of our sense of entitlement, a sense of, of discontentment, we deserve more. What's the deal? The cross just silences all of that. It says, Man, it's just one ever flowing stream of grace coming towards you, even in trial. God's doing something good for you in Jesus. And so, I wonder where have you been in all of this? If you're like me, we get going so fast. We don't even stop to say thank you. We don't even realize what God's done or if we do realize it, we're just we're just ready for the, him to do the next thing. We need the next thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for doing that, but I need this now. And what we were a month ago really praying about and he, he, he answered or he took care of us, we've already forgotten about and we're on to the next worry or concern. And there's this real profound moment we can engage in when instead of just marching on, we say, no, no, no stop. Let's say thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this gift. We glorify him in that moment as giver. I don't know if you have kids, what they're like on Christmas morning, but we don't want to be like my kids on Christmas morning. <laughs> have you seen this before? You open one gift, but before you're already, you've really even looked at it. You're like, what's next? <laughs> like, okay, that's great. Cool. But, but give me the next one. Yeah. You know, and they're just doing this thing. And you're like, no, enjoy that gift and say, thank you. And we can be like those kids sometimes. We don't want to be like those kids. We want to be more like, and this is where I'll leave you, we want to be more like the leper that we mentioned a couple weeks ago. Do you remember this guy? I don't know if you saw the connection between glorifying God and giving him thanks, but I'll show it to you now. But there were 10 lepers who begged Jesus to heal, and there were 10 lepers who Jesus healed, but there was only one leper who stopped, went back, and said, Thank you and in that glorified him luke 17:15 and 16 then one of them when he saw that he was healed turned back praising there's our word though Daxanzo, glorifying god with a loud voice and he fell on his face at jesus feet giving him thanks glorified God how by saying thank you let's enter in now with that leper and just give thanks to God for the grace He's shown us let's pray Jesus thank you thank you for the grace you've shown us thank you for the grace that's always coming at us thank you for our adoption thank you for the privilege of praying thank you Jesus that you have uh Renewed our nature, that you've put together our hearts, that there's fruit coming forth from my life, and it's not dependent on my straining and effort. I thank you that you have made us rich in yourself, that we will inherit the world someday. Thank you, Jesus, for all the countless ways that you are moving in our midst, even now. Would you be glorified, God, as we lift our voices to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.